Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, Nina. Hi, Andrew. Quite weak in the stalls today, wasn't it? Really? I know. It was weird, like weirdly quiet with the news, but closing the loop, finally received royal assent. Yeah, so August. Yeah, August is when everything should take place. So we'll do that. We'll renew our interest around about July and remind you when things are about to happen. We've also seen the anti-vaping, not anti-vaxxing case that was successful in Queensland. That's just a shit decision and who cares, really? Yeah, I think the media is going to try and stir it up again, but I think... But who cares? Look, yeah, the bottom really line is it was a medical emergency. People need to get vaccinated. I'm not terribly concerned that somebody forgot to dot an eye across a T. That's, this is driven by sort of Clive Palmer group of people who want to, you know, want to make a lot about personal choice. I'm telling you now, if you're working next to me, we have another epidemic. Um, you, you better be vaxxed. That's that's what I think. Anyway, so that's, that's happened. When you hear about it, just yawn loudly and say... That was yesterday. <laughs> I tell you what is interesting, though, and I, and I I guess we just got some great new figures out around psychological claims and workers' compensation. And safe work, yeah. Yeah. So I think the thing Nina and I are both chatting about beforehand is when we looked at the psychological claims pre-COVID, they were inclined to be blue-collar government. There was a certainly nursing aged care started to show a bit of signs. They weren't big in education. But what we're seeing now is a real surge of these claims, not surprisingly in health because of what's happened post-COVID, mm. but in education. And public administration. Yeah, yeah. public administration and in professional services. Yeah. So we're it's seeing really it in growing. our type of businesses. Yeah. But it's not stress. So this is the irony, isn't it? Yeah. We've introduced a workers' comp piece of legislation yeah. which says stress is in the thing. And it's I mean, it is there, but it's not what is causing the majority of these mental health claims. No, it's mainly bullying, sexual harassment. Yeah, Yeah. so that was sort of really, I mean, that's helpful for me because I've been saying that for a long time and now someone else says it with data rather than making it up, so that's good. But what we are seeing is the behaviours in the workplace, major, egregiously bad behaviour is the thing that's causing people significant pain and there's no surprises about that. Yeah, and I suspect this has come out due to an un, like increased understanding by employees with all the changes with respect at work and all the psych hazards, people now understand what is inappropriate behaviour and when there's a pattern of it, it's bullying. So, yeah, and they can say no, yeah. you know, which is great. The other part I thought is just the impact. You know, an average claim is eight weeks off a psych claim. Is it 36 weeks or 30 What's yeah, that? I think 34.2 weeks. Yeah. It's four times more expensive than a normal standard claim and there's an 80% chance that from the date of claim that the person will come back. That's 20% won't come back. Our anecdotal evidence is that after the 13-week period, mm. if someone's still off, there's less than a 50% chance that a person will return their pre-injury duties. So I don't think there's a lot of surprises, no. but I think it's really interesting and I think it reinforces this idea of, yeah, look, let's deal with the leadership issues around clarity of work, deal with all those things, really important, but let's just stop bad behaviour in the workplace. Yeah. And make that our focus, make the focus just being good in the workplace. And I think a lot of this will fall away. Yeah, I do too. Interesting in New South Wales, appointing new inspectors, so they're, they're like Victoria getting out there, creating psychological inspectors to go out, and they're focusing in white collar, not blue collar again. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing... This trend, so remember, workers' comp, Victoria, weird, 
trying to say that everything's stress-related and exclude the amount of claims by saying can't get it for stress. For those people who've read the law, they know you can't get it for stress anyway because it's not a psychological injury, but for the Victorian government, we can say a long duh. <laughs> but we are seeing on the other side WorkSafe in Victoria, now in New South Wales and other states, starting to train the point people who are skilled and focusing in those areas of high risk around psychological hazards. And so the prosecutions we've seen in Victoria and sexual harassment and, and bullying, mm. we're going to see more of those across Australia. So Yeah, I think it was really interesting because this came out of a Safe Work New South Wales review and the reason why they're now going to do this is because collectively across the board, employers, unions, everyone agreed that the Safe Work New South Wales inspectors had no knowledge of psychological hazards, even though it's a priority. So that's why it's not getting picked up. That's why things aren't getting prosecuted and things got to change. So yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's on its way, isn't it? Yeah. Right to disconnect very briefly on oh, awards. This is one of those things where the Fair Work Commission say what they feel like at one day it's not going to have anything to do with the wards. And next day, the President Adam Hatchin says, well, we are going to think about it. So I think the answer for us is we haven't got a clue what's going to happen. And we're not sure the Fair Work Commission does either. So yeah. watch this space. We'll know more. Like they just haven't addressed it at all in the current one. I know, but they said they weren't going to do it. And now it, it he, says, like he says we are going to do it. It's and I, I think they haven't got a clue what they're doing. I think maybe they'll probably push it to next year's one. Yeah, I think so too. Anyway, that's just us having a gripe. <laughs> I'm grumpy today if you haven't picked it. Okay, let's go on to exploitation of migrant workers under 457. Nina and I have now dealt, we, we work throughout the meat industry, which is a high use visa. There is always clawbacks put within mm -hmm. agreements around certain costs, which are permissible under law and migration law. But there is a more agrarious breach that's out there which says, yeah, I'll take yeah. you on for 457, but there's a payback. You know, if I've got to pay what's required by migration, and this is what the normal hourly rate is, you give me back the difference. The difference, I know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not shitting you. This is true. This is actually true, and there's a case on it, and not surprisingly, it's Easy Vaping Company. Who decided <laughs> That's that. why you said anti-vaping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I'm anti-vaping. I'm not actually. We've got vaping clients. I love them a great deal. But this was a crazy, crazy, crazy thing to do, and it was just dishonest, yeah. and it was seen as deliberate. It was a knowledgeable and deliberate breach. How could it, how else could it be taken, though? And it's these are big fines. These are massive fines. And if it went, if it was characterised then as wage theft, which wasn't the argument was here, it's criminal as well. Yeah. So can I just say to you, there are very limited things you can claw back in relation to visa workers. Yeah, there's actually a specific list of what you can. And yeah. I think it's only anything to do with their application. Yeah, but it, look, give Nina a call if you're worried about it and she'll give you a heads up. Yeah, but what I want you to understand is generalised clawback provisions are unlawful and the recovery of those money is unlawful and it is waged theft. Mm. And if you were charged, it is a criminal, has criminal consequences. So the reason we gave this case is, wow, bit of a surprise. And even in this case, they paid back the money and they pleaded guilty early and they still got whacked for the $37,000 fine. Yeah. So, um, but they were just lucky they weren't charged with the wage thing. Yeah. yeah. Very, very lucky. Next case is around criminal proceedings. As you're aware, most jurisdictions in anti-discrimination legislation don't actually deal with past criminal behaviour. There's a couple of states that do, and the federal government does under the Australian Human Rights legislation. Yeah. The case we want to talk about today is a very simple case. It's a complaint against the ACT, and it was a crazy set of facts. Yeah. But before I get to the set of facts, I want you to remember this. People don't 
have to disclose spent convictions. There are exemptions to that, like child safety and two or three other exemptions that exist. But if a conviction is spent, that is, as a matter of law, they are no longer part of their criminal record. The law says they do not have to disclose it. That's not the facts in this case, but I just want you to know that each state and territory and federal government do have spent conviction laws. If you find out somebody was charged with a minor dishonesty crime, but it is a spent conviction and you seek to rely upon it, you're in a lot of trouble, particularly for dismissal. But go to the facts in this case because no, they no. are hysterical. Yeah, and I think it's a common thing that we get called about all the time where someone says, oh, I found out that this person has this conviction for something that's not related to work. Can I get rid of them? Which is exactly what happened here because they were on the temporary employment register with this ACT government, disclosed that they had a prior conviction to do with assault can I just drugs. Say, can I just say, and the important part is for the rest of this case, they did make an open and yes. honest disclosure, okay? Yeah, they were very, very <laughs> upfront. But then with the first disclosure, two weeks after the disclosure, they got terminated because of it. And so they applied to the Australian Human Rights Commission because that's a breach. Mm. So after they went to conciliation, they got reinstated and they said, look, because of that, we're not putting you permanent, we're just putting you on the temporary register. But, it's, it, not, but it's not over yet. Yeah. <laughs> so the employee keeps working diligently, no issues with performance, is on rollover contracts, and is on track to become a permanent employee because of how good they're doing. The employee happens to live in a house where the police raid it, targeting someone else, and because the police weren't sure if they had disclosed that to the government, they report that to the Integrity Commission, who reports to the ACT government. ACT government decides not going to talk to the employee about it. No. No, I'm just going to, I think, cut their duties, remove them, and then eventually withdraw the offer to make them permanent employee. Employee tries to explain, I've already disclosed this, and remember you actually terminated me and then you had to reinstate me. HR manager ignores all of that. Assistant HR manager. Oh, gosh. I, I'm, I I'm very so. rarely across the facts. I hope so. Terrible. <laughs> anyway, it all gets fixed and everyone says you're a deal yeah. and you're not allowed to do it. So remember the yeah. law around around criminal records, to the extent that you are allowed to know about it, is that if it doesn't pertain to the nature of the role, so if it's dishonesty and it's an accountant, could be or a... mishandling refinement. Yeah. Kind of I mean, obviously it goes to it. But if it's a speeding conviction and no part of the person's role is driving, mm. you'd sort of go... Or how could that be relevant? So yeah. obviously the more serious the nature of the crime, the more moral turpitude. I like using the word turpitude every now. I was actually going to put in a case for, for Nina to say just to watch. But the more serious the crime, the more it is relevant by nature and goes to reputation. But if it doesn't relate to the job the person is doing, it is not a relevant matter because all attributes go towards inherent requirements of the yeah. job doesn't relate to the inherent requirements of the job it's not a proper basis and it's discrimination <laughs> yeah that's super bad okay so let's go on and i think we're up to is a workers comp one we're up to the workers comp one. Oh no 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 we're up to one. buck roofing oh yeah so this, this is, is a four from heights yeah case. actually can i just say before we do this the court of appeals went five times above or the supreme court not the court of appeal wasn't it went five times above what a magistrate did for a four for heights which seriously injured somebody, I tell you what, these people really got out of jail. Yeah. No, I just want to say this at the beginning because the original magistrate gave them 8,000. It was, it was 7,500 yeah, for someone falling four metres through a roof. Yeah, which the reason they fell is because they were aware that they had to put 
guardrails and mesh and they did it because they ran out of material. And then Can I just say this is, a, this is a two to three hundred thousand dollar fine. Anyway, yeah. it's appealed for being manifestly inadequate to the Supreme Court. And it, Court. it went up to like forty thousand. Yeah, and, and that Supreme Court judge Huffman, Huffman said, "I'm going to give that forty thousand. Can I just say that is nonsense? If that person died, it's between four to five hundred thousand in Victoria. Okay, they absolutely. It was. 0.5% of the maximum fine for the time. Yeah, that's a nonsense. That's crazy. So, look, we, we gave this case to show that the magistrate's court's a funny place. You can get almost anything based on who you got on a particular day. We can never say whether a conviction is going to be recorded or not for minor stuff. But if you fall through a void and the matter ends in front of a, the usual county court judges who deal with safety stuff, you're in six figures straight away with just an injury. If you've got death, and although death is not an element of the of an offence except in industrial manslaughter, if you've got a death in there and you've got obvious failings and deliberate failings, you're well over four hundred thousand, and you're running the risk now of moving towards reckless endangerment as well. So, we gave you this case because both of us read it and started giggling and saying, "How could they get this? How absurd is this decision?" It's also flash, but the bottom line is it is a great story about where we are. That there will be anomalous cases like this and people express outrage the Supreme Court went five times. I think the Supreme Court just ran out of fingers, to be honest. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's a one-handed judge because they should have multiplied it by 30 as to yeah. what the proper, proper fine was. But, like, the reasoning about the fact that it needs to be enough to subject, be a deterrent shows that it's like what we said, that they're going to keep increasing it. Just it happened in this case. It was quite small, the increase. Yeah, okay. Well, let's go to the next one, which is a workers' comp case. And it is a, this is a really interesting case. And this was a aged care worker who was assaulted by a violent, obviously by a violent patient. As a result of that, nobody doubts that that employee suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, PTSD is on a continuum and is the most serious of incident-based mental injury, if that makes sense. So it's, it's right at the far end of seriousness. So it's quite profound. Compensation claim was accepted and then the employer sought to review that and say the person did have capacity to work. Now, I've spent this week talking at workers' compensation conferences about what good employer and insurer behaviour looks like. What it doesn't do is take someone who's vulnerable and damaged and concoct a story that someone has capacity to go back and work in a slightly part-time fashion yeah. in an environment where the risk of being assaulted by another is an uncontained risk. So it might be in three months' time this person would be able to go back to work because that risk would be a manageable thing with a person's mental state. But to merely say that if we remove you from this person, there is no risk is a nonsense. And the other thing it does is it shows how dangerous doctor shopping is because what the judge did at the end of it looked at it and said, look, I just don't accept medical evidence. I don't give any weight to that because the preponderance of evidence quite clear is the person suffers, doesn't have a capacity to work in this environment, and if confronted by another circumstance would be damaging. Now, if a lay person can look at medical decision-making, and it is so plain, and it is plain on its face when you read this case. By the way, it's a really, really good judgment. I enjoyed reading it. You realise the cynicism that comes behind behaviour like this is built up because of some other narrative that exists in people's head, mm -hmm. a story they have, you know, don't trust this person, they're having it on. The law is very simple. If you concoct a position that you say a person could capacity, but there is no such position in reality that does exist, 
So in this case, there is no position part-time working as an aged care provider that you can guarantee that they won't be confronted by an angry and violent patient. Then it is a nonsense. The person doesn't have capacity, and that's what they found. So the person was allowed to continue with their weekly benefits and was said to lack capacity. Now, in two or three months' time, if they had just waited and supported this person, they would have had it in a gradated way of coming back to work. They would have had it. So it's an incredibly dumb thing that was done. But now imagine taking this woman through this court process, what damage has been done, the cost and the delay in getting the person back to work or maybe never get them back to work. Incredibly stupid. Anyway, there we go. (laughs) You're right. I told you I was crappy to tell you. The curmudgeon in me is out there running. Let's jump on to the next issue. This is a big issue, but there's not much about it. No, they keep like every couple of months saying we've definitely got to crack down on restraints. It's very anti-competition, but then they do nothing. So yeah, so it's a trend. Can I say this is a not a European trend where non-disclosures and um, restraints are still very much part of business life, but it is one that's come out of America and partly because of the highly publicised use of NDAs during the Trump era and others of saying, gee, we need to do something to stop people when they do something harmful to someone being able to sign away their rights of ever disclosing because part of healing is actually being able to say I was harmed. Mm. And from that there has devolved this other thing of saying, well, why can I say you can't work elsewhere? If If I protect the intellectual property part of it, why can't your experience here benefit you elsewhere? It's clearly anti-competitive. So what the federal government have said is they are really concerned that they're in larger business, which is ill-defined in it, but in larger business, anything. it's over 45% of contracts for people at a senior level, also ill-defined, who are subject to restraints. It's weird, isn't it? Like that's a lot of people who are being told they can't work somewhere else in a mm. business, in a very small country, you know, 30 million people, yeah. there may be only, you know, if you're in Coles saying you can't work for another food distribution and retailer, is killer because there's only two others. It means you can't work. So Australia does have to address this issue, but what it means for contracts going forward is please listen and exercise judgment as to whether a restraint is something that you really need. We, we see them as template documents and we always say, do you really want to do this? Look at what are you really trying to restrain and be sensible about it. Am I only really trying to restrain you from two people? Yeah. And try and narrow your restraints down. So the test is I can restrain someone if it is reasonable to do it, okay? That's not a very helpful test. And so what you do is you cascade the nature of the restraints down so a court can say, no, that part's unreasonable, that part, but that's okay. But isn't it better to say to an employee who's coming to you, look, we're going to back you, we're going to build your skills. But what we're going to do that, we're actually arming you to compete against us with these two clients. So you need to be clear before you start with us. We will not allow you to go directly from our place to this place and do that. But the broader ones, I don't know about you, Nina. I mean, I've had to sign them most of my life and I've always understood they're not enforceable yeah, by nature and I sort of giggle and go off you go do your best. But it is a burden as I have le- left businesses looking at my unenforceable restraint knowing I'm going to get a lawyer's letter telling me. But I'm a lawyer who specialises in restraint, so I just sort of write back to them and say, no, <laughs> goodbye. But if you're not that person, just imagine the damage in your life and, and the opportunities that you give up. So this is coming to Australia soon. Yeah. It will be intrusive. It will be based on competition law. So the tests are, will be complex. They will require great skill. 
Australian competition law will never prevent you from stopping working against a direct competitor if you identify the nature of what that person does and what they can't do, not can't work for a competitor, but cannot work in this space with this competitor. It's going to be enforceable. Yeah, so watch this space. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I guess when it comes in, yeah, no, no, but when it comes in, I guess the answer is when it comes in, it will attack any contract that exists. So get them right now. Yeah. Point. yeah, we're not going too bad. We've got time for the next bit. We've still got our main topic in this. Oh, the main, that is the main topic. Yeah, we've got 10 minutes. <laughs> we've got 10 minutes. I'm fine. Couldn't you make me panic? Look at the watch. Okay, next, let's go. Enforceable oh. undertakings. Enforceable undertakings. Oh, that is the main topic. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was like. Why did I say main topic? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> topic. Okay, look. So there was a en- recent enforceable undertaking by the company's <laughs> name, Alistair MacDonald, where they had someone oh, who was run over by a reversing telehandler. They had already directed them not to be in the exclusion zone, but there was no actual physical barriers. And there's a so the charge with a primary duty breach and also a version of reckless endangerment. Yeah. And in New South Wales, the regulator accepted an enforceable undertaking. Yeah, it's going to cost 300k, I think. Yeah, 300. Yeah. Well, 380, I think it was. Yeah. But so the question that Nina and I talked about is we in Victoria and in New South Wales and Queensland, where most of our work is, it's not unusual for people to say to us, look, could we get out of this with an enforceable undertaking? One of the reasons for that, obviously, is there is a whole number of contracts you have that a conviction triggers a risk. Mm. Uh, Coles and Woolworths-type contracts, what it normally causes a, a risk to be triggered to say we could enter the contract, but they start grinding you for extra money. But whatever it does, or whether it's with government around migrant workers, yeah. all of your contracts or procurement over the next few years will look at safety as a key issue. So enforceable undertakings doesn't create a conviction, so it's a way through it. It's always about 20 to 50% more expensive. Yeah. And it also creates undertakings which are more than are required by law. Yes. So it's more than reasonable. So the risk of breach is high, which allows them to re-agitate. And there's a higher risk for officers as well. Yeah, no, I was going to come to that. But once you breach, Mm. they can not only get you in breach, but they can re-agitate the whole claim again. Yeah, that's right. So, So you can end up with three or four times the total cost. But as Nina was saying, the biggest issue with enforceable undertakings is once you get someone to promise not to do something, and usually at a higher threshold than what is reasonably practical, you've created a new reasonably practical. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you've got officer knowledge of the wrongdoing. Because they've got that in writing now. (laughs) Yeah, and they're signing off on it. Yeah. So if you give an enforceable undertaking in respect of something which is an inherent risk in an organisation, which is unstoppable, so getting cut with knives in meat industry, okay, stress-related claims in teaching, you know, from child violence, those yeah. sort of things. If, you, if you're stupid enough to give an enforceable undertaking that, you're sending your officers to jail. That's the truth of it. So we always say, look, happy to talk about enforceable undertakings, but we will push down to reasonably practical. We'll make sure it is the type of one which is not going to happen again. So so the risk is not there of no matter how good you are at being repeated. And we'll always do part of officer training and assessment process. So if it happens again, the officers can show they've gone through a risk grid. Mm -hmm. And although it did happen again, they've applied the right resources, done the right thing with advice, so they can't be prosecuted. So I'm not saying don't do enforceable undertakings. 
but do you think really carefully? Yeah, I think people kind of assume it's like a get out of jail free card. Monopoly, but it's not as simple as that. It's not that you just ask them and they agree. There's a whole complicated process and it, it costs a lot just to go through yeah, the process the actual legal, you have to draft it yourself. If you're doing a plea of guilty compared to an enforceable undertaking, it's actually cheaper to do a plea of guilty in most cases than yeah. go through this negotiated process. And the other part is you're left with a take it or leave it. You have yeah. a, quite a small band of opportunity yeah. to, to do it. It's so, not like back and forth negotiations. And you'll see, so that Section 16 under the Victorian legislation, each provision has a... Like factors to be considered. Yeah, sort of prosecutorial guidelines yeah. of what they'll consider. So they're unlikely to do it in the relation of death. Yeah. It's more than three months after charges. Or repeat it, offenders. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're not inclined and to do it. it's going to be in the public interest. So like that, yeah. go there and have a look online before you start doing it. But remember, say to your lawyers, when you know you're about to be charged and you receive the brief, is there a better way of doing this? But then truly weigh the level of risk for officers and the organisation and the frequency of the of the nature of the risk so that yeah. you understand that you are getting the balance right. So not doing force bonds things. Yeah. If it's going to affect your supply chain, definitely it's got to be right up there. But then there is a lot of negotiation and driving to get the right terms. And then there is a whole governance process that sits behind protecting the officers afterwards. And even though they end at a certain point, it doesn't wipe the slate clean. We've had prosecutions where they've referred to something that's happened 20 years ago because they've got that evidence. So yeah. it's forever. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. So okay. let's move on because that's the second main topic. Um, no, you feel no, no, the other one, one had main topic on the screen. I believed it. Let's right. go to the case okay, study. <laughs> Rooftop. Proprietary Limited install corrugated steel roofing <laughs> on commercial warehouses. RT was engaged by a high building, <laughs> a commercial builder to roof 14 warehouses on a commercial subdivision in Epping. The average height of the warehouses was 4.2 metres. Guy, the foreman of HB, instructed RT to commence work on lot four. All framings were complete. RT developed a swims with HB. It involved the use of mobile scaffold for prevention barriers and harnesses. Terry, a roofing plumber for RT, was fixing guttering to the roof of Lot 4 when he stepped back and fell through a void, suffering serious injury. He had unclipped his harness, walked off the mobile platform to the roof and fixed the fall prevention fence so he would, couldn't fall from the front of the roof. He was not aware of some recent works by RT and HB, removing one sheet of corrugated iron to lift internally and attach solid panels to the roof. The solar panel installation had been part of a separate swims that Terry had no knowledge of. HB was not aware that Terry would be undertaking guttering work on the day of the incident. It was not part of the shared work schedule with RT. WorkSafe had charged both RT and HB with breaches of primary duties to safe, have safe systems of work and unsafe work environment, particularising code prevention of falls in general construction and part 3.3 of the OHS regs, fall from greater than two metres. RT is seeking an enforceable undertaking with WorkSafe. Well done. What is the effect of the code and the regulations? So, first of all, the code, the code and regulations say it is definitely a fall from height, definitely yeah. a breach, greater than two metres, sets out methods of practice, when you, when you read it and you're going through that, you go, oh, my God, that's why we brought the earlier case up about Buck because it's so obvious it's such a serious breach. Section 16 of the guidelines of Vic for enforcement undertake. The charges were laid two months ago. If they're more than three months old, WorkSafe would want some exceptional ex explanation and they wouldn't slow the prosecution process down. So they wouldn't turn it off at that stage. Yeah. It would continue through committal stage. And when that happens, can I just say to you, and I've been in this process where we've tried this all the way through, 
they became more and more aggressive of what they wanted in the enforceable undertaking, including costs. So I think it's unlikely for falls from height that they do in EU anyway because it's one of the top prosecution areas. Oh, they will, they will, but if it's deaf, you have no chance at all. Could RT and HB be charged rather breach the OHS Act? Absolutely. Mm, yeah. Okay, so these are reckless endangerment charges from both of them. Being indifferent to a risk of fall where both parties have separate swims and not consulting and, with each other, they've reached out as well. And yeah. they have, both have supervision obligations yeah. and their system is so flawed. I think both, and particularly the leaders' minds in both places mm. who are managing it, particularly if RT is a small family-owned business, yeah. are at huge risk. Let's go to the next question. What have we got? What are the risks for RT entering into an EU, especially what are the risks for Warren, the sole director and shareholder? I think we've canvassed these yeah, already the and said, you know, when you're a roofing contractor, anything to where you about falling through voids or off roofs is just a very dangerous thing to do mm. because it is a risk. Remember Chief Justice Spiegelman, I quote from the New South Wales Supreme Court's comment about safety law is stopping stupid people doing stupid things. When you're working on roofs, you cannot stop some of the behaviours from people doing stuff. And if you've made undertakings which are well above reasonably practical, you're in the gun, so be careful about it. What is the likely cost of the uh, enforceable undertaking compared to the fine? Forget about the case we talked about earlier, serious injury here. If it's a first offence, you'd be at about $120,000 to $160,000. Magistrates court will be slightly less. Yeah. So because it has a maximum fine of about four hundred in Victoria, you might get out with eighty to ninety, depending. And magistrates are really affected, although they ought not be, by the nature of the injury. So the person was paralysed, then it'd be right back up there. So the enforceable undertaking process, though, will be 20 to 25 to 50% higher in total yeah. cost involved in making of videos, the, you know, a whole lot of stuff yeah, around who you are. So yeah. think about it very carefully. And we've got some other really exciting news. So yeah, can we go to the actual. next slide? Yeah, Kim, Captain Kim is out with us. All pain, no game, looking at WorkSafe in Victoria's crazy sort of view on psychological hazards, that is, prosecute you to death but not compensate you. <laughs> uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this this is just after the end of the premium management time, look at statistical case estimates, look at how to predict premium, and then focus really deeply on psychological hazards. And it'll be practical, that's the Very, thing. It's always yeah. practical with Kim, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And no, there'll but, be swearing, yeah. as Kim said, so it'll be good. <laughs> so that's on. And I think for please the Please, guys, repeat through the email. Yeah, please do it that way, and you'll get one out as well. By the way, guys, we're done now, so yeah, thumbs, thumbs up. up. Thank Cheers. you. Bye-bye. Bye.